Good afternoon. My name is Andrea Bjorklund. I am the uh, Associate Dean of Graduate Studies and a full professor and the uh, L. Eve Fortier Chair in International Arbitration and International Commercial Law at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Um, today I'm going to talk to you about the uh, pros and cons of establishing an investment court to resolve disputes between foreign investors and host states. One of the most discussed areas in international law is investor state dispute settlement, or ISDS. Technically speaking, investor state dispute settlement refers to any way of settling a dispute between an investor and a host state. But in practical discourse, ISDS refers to arbitration, which is the most common way to solve those disputes. Consent to arbitration is sometimes provided for in specific contracts, but it also is frequently provided in bilateral investment treaties between the investor's home state and the host state in which the investor is making an investment. We find similar investment agreements and dispute resolution possibilities in the investment chapters of free trade agreements, such as the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. All told, some 2,800 treaties have the possibility of investor state dispute settlement. ISDS has been the target of vociferous but intermittent criticism over the past 20 years. These criticisms have given rise to proposals for reform, and now, in 2019, enthusiasm for change seems to be growing. Uh, the proposed changes are both bilateral and multilateral. On the bilateral front, the European Union has been the primary moving force. It has included a two-tier investment court system in the investment chapters of the free trade agreements it has negotiated since it gained competence over foreign direct investment um, with the Treaty of Lisbon. Thus, the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement between Canada and the European Union, or CETA, contains a, an investment court to resolve investor state disputes. Similar investment court systems are also in other EU investment agreements, including those with Vietnam, Singapore, and Mexico. For reasons of EU law, investment agreements will likely be separated from free trade agreements in the future, but the investment court system is likely to remain unless or until there is a multilateral investment court. On the multilateral front, the week of December 12, 2016, government representatives met in Geneva to discuss the foundation of a multilateral appellate tribunal. That initiative has now been subsumed in the discussion of reform of investor state dispute settlement that is currently underway in UNCITRAL's Working Group 3. There, state delegates have agreed that reform is desirable although they do not yet have consensus on the best way to achieve reform or on precisely what particular reform they would like to, to uh, succeed in uh, arriving at. Establishing a multilateral court composed of both a first instance tribunal and an appellate body is one possibility. A standalone appellate body is another. There is even the possibility that states could choose to funnel appeals from arbitrations to the appellate body uh, that would also serve the first instance tribunal. 
uh, various reforms to the existing regime of investor state arbitration are also on the table, as is dispensing with arbitration altogether. Thus, work on the multilateral front is ongoing, but slow. The European Union's proposal for an investment court system in the CETA is the most developed at present. It includes many features that are likely to be included in a multilateral court, assuming one is eventually developed. It is thus useful to look at some of the main features of the investment court system to assess whether they respond to criticisms of investment arbitration, whether they solve some problems while exacerbating others, and whether they create entirely independent problems. Um, I'm going to look at some of those matters uh, in my discussion with you today. Um, when relevant, I will make some suggestions for slightly different considerations that are likely to arise when or if a bilateral court becomes a multilateral investment court. The investment court system proposal evidently draws inspiration from the WTO dispute settlement mechanism. Whether it or a similar multilateral initiative responds adequately to concerns about investor state dispute settlement is an open question. Certainly, there are important and possibly beneficial changes in the proposal, but depending on one's views of the deficiencies of investment arbitration, they might not go far enough. Moreover, depending on what happens multilaterally, the more complex and open the architecture of a multilateral investment court, the more likely it is that some concerns will not be addressed. For purposes of this lecture today, I'm going to discuss how responsive proposals for a court are to criticisms of ISDS. Of course, the answer to that question depends in part on what those criticisms are. Um, I am grouping the major criticisms of ISDS into five categories. Uh, to be sure, there is some overlap between them, but for purposes of discussion, it's useful to try to distinguish them. The first major criticism is that ISDS infringes on state sovereignty. Sovereignty is an amorphous term that has been described as a will-o'-the-wisp. It is hard to grasp. In the investment law context, it tends to cover concerns that investment law constrains states' freedom to regulate and that decisions about important matters of public law are taken by privately appointed ad hoc arbitrators instead of decisions being taken by local courts and locally trained and accountable judges. Does the proposal for an investment court really respond to these criticisms? The answer is somewhat mixed. An investment court would still be a type of international dispute settlement rather than local dispute settlement in the host state of the investment with a variety of standards of treatment derived from international law imposed on the state. So you would still have the judging of local regulatory standards against international standards, and you would still have that judging occur by an international court, albeit one that would be permanent or semi-permanent, uh, rather than a tribunal convened for purposes of one case only. But it would not be judged by local judges who are part of the polity. How that court will be structured is still an open question. Uh, in fact, the international community lacks agreement about precisely what attributes the decision makers should have. On the one hand is the desire to have a neutral forum. On the other is the desire to have some kind of representation from the polity being judged. 
Uh, this tension occurs in every international tribunal. It is one of the reasons for the judge ad hoc at the International Court of Justice, where if a state that is party to the dispute does not have its national on the bench, it can name a judge for purposes of the procedure. Um, it isn't clear which of those items states want to prioritize. So this tension between neutrality and representation uh, will persist and, and at some stage will have to be resolved when an investment court is established. Um, now, if there is a, a multilateral investment court or a bilateral court, judges and appellate body members must be independent of the government. Uh, judges' concerns, uh, sorry, judges' decisions generally raise concerns about democratic accountability even when those judges are a part of the system of governance. These decision makers would be even less accountable, which again seems inconsistent with concerns about democracy. This is again not a concern specific to investment arbitration, but given the strength of the sovereignty critique, the problem seems likely to remain salient. Investment arbitration poses what could be viewed as the inverse concern right now as well. Investors are quite fearful that a bilateral court or a multilateral court will be uh, peopled with pro-state decision makers. There appears to be something of an acquired rights idea that investors are accustomed to appointing one of the arbitrators in a case and participating in the selection of a presiding arbitrator, and they don't want to give up that opportunity. Yet, of course, generally, states do appoint judges, both domestically and internationally. Um, and it is to be hoped that states selecting judges uh, will be presumed to be doing it and will in fact be doing it with both defensive and offensive interests in mind. In other words, they will be mindful of their, of their need to defend themselves um, in, in cases brought against them, but they will also be mindful that their investors want protections and fair and neutral dispute settlement in cases that they bring. The second main constellation of concerns uh, surrounding investor-state dispute settlement has to do with consistency, predictability, and correctness in arbitral decision-making. A lack of those features has been challenged as a threat to the integrity of the investor-state dispute settlement system and of international law more generally. The establishment of a court system, and in particular an appellate tribunal, whether as part of an integrated two-tier court or as, as a standalone body, is evidently meant to respond to this concern. Insofar as a bilateral body is concerned, an appellate body at the apex of an investment court system that is the decision-making body for a single treaty might be able to impose more consistency and predictability. To the extent a multilateral court or a standalone appellate body hears cases based on multiple distinct treaties and multiple standards of treatment, it is more questionable whether that kind of consistency, predictability, and predictability can be achieved. And the question of correctness is also open to doubt, as I will explain first. Um, first, when it comes to correctness, the appellate body would have the authority to review decisions for manifest errors of law or clear errors of fact. 
in addition to reviewing on the grounds for annulment currently found in the ICSID Convention. That's what is proposed in the CETA uh, court system. But at least for some questions, it is not so clear what the correct decision is. Uh, thus, it is not altogether clear that the second tribunal will be able to make a more correct decision than the first. It might be different. Um, uh, and certainly to the extent that there is an appellate body with uh, authority to make definitive pronouncements, we will have a correct decision in a formalistic sense, but it's not necessarily the case that everyone will agree. Um, and that brings me to uh, a second question, which is what will be the role of dissents? Um, at the World Trade Organization's appellate body, there is not really a culture of dissent, and any dissents that are issued are done anonymously, so one does not know which appellate body member wrote the dissent. Um, now, we don't know uh, what uh, a multilateral court or indeed an inter investment court system would bring, uh, but uh, it is likely I would posit that because investment arbitration has created a culture of dissent, it would, that the desire to be able to issue dissents will carry over into the investment court uh, arena. Uh, this ability to issue dissents would certainly run counter to the goal of setting out a decision universally heralded as correct. Um, this is, of course, not different from any uh, decision in any other court that permits dissents, and the decision of the majority would presumably be controlling. Um, but it would be as well to have a reasonable expectation about correctness. Uh, some of these issues are quite contentious. They're difficult. They're very fact-specific, so that reasonable people can differ about what is correct, and an investment court system is unlikely to change that, that fact. Um, the consistency and predictability of decision-making in an investment court system or in a multilateral court is certainly likely to be enhanced with a limited number of judges and appellate body members who each serve for a, a prolonged period of time. Uh, but there are a few caveats. First, to the extent you have a bilateral court interpreting only one treaty, you have a single line of decisions. If a multilateral investment court is interpreting multiple treaties, you will likely have different decisions depending on differences in treaty language. These differences uh, can be likely be explained with careful reading and parsing of the decision. Yet it seems likely that many critics will not distinguish between inconsistent decisions based on subtle differences in treaty language. Um, second, to the extent that there is the tendency of a multilateral investment court to gloss over differences in treaty language to create a consistent line of cases uh, in order to achieve this goal of consistency and predictability, you run the risk of undermining state sovereignty. States have carefully negotiated their treaties um, in order to have uh, precisely tailored language that they have selected. For example, the United States and Canada are quite clear that their treaties posit a minimum standard of treatment grounded in customary international law. 
They do not agree that this standard is the same as a freestanding fair and equitable treatment standard. Their position would not change if a court attempted to merge the standards on the grounds of prioritizing consistency in decision-making. Third, we have the question of how different the decision-making would be from the current regime, where a relatively small group of arbitrators have dozens of appointments and issue dozens of decisions on similar topics. Or to put it another way, we have a lot of repeat players. They have not convinced each other of what the correct answer is, and we have not achieved consistency. Um, by, naming them by naming them judges rather than arbitrators, it is not clear that we would achieve any kind of consensus, uh, any more consensus than we already have, which of course gives rise to this question of who the decision makers are going to be. Are they going to be different from those who are already the most active arbitrators? A great deal of the criticism in investor state dispute settlement has coalesced around the identity of the arbitrators, who are private individuals, indeed two of whom are party-appointed arbitrators. One of those parties is the government, the host state in the dispute. Um, and arbitrators who do not necessarily have public law or public international law experience or sensibilities, but are often viewed as too concerned about commerce or as prioritizing commercial considerations over state sovereignty considerations. Now, it has to be said that empirically this is less than true, especially in the past 10 years or so. Of the top 30 arbitrators, most have public international law backgrounds or uh, mixed backgrounds where they have some commercial experience to be sure, but significant public sector experience as well. Uh, other concerns have arisen about conflicts of interest, that many arbitrators also act as counsel and that it is inconsistent with their duty as an arbitrator to wear double hats. Uh, the concerns are that they might feel constrained in their decision-making as an arbitrator if they know that their decisions might be used in an argument in a case affecting a client whom they are representing, and that case raises a similar issue. Of course, this works the other way around as well. One might also be concerned about an advocate's credibility um, and whether that is threatened, should she have signed an award in a case and the decision in that case uh, can be used against her client. Still other concerns focus on the limited pool of arbitrators who tend to be senior and often male, albeit with two notable exceptions. Um, they also tend to come from Western Europe and North America. Uh, now, details about how to resolve some of these issues are more developed in the investment court system context in the CETA than uh, in any proposal for a multilateral in investment court as yet. Um, the ICS proposal eliminates the double hatting issue. This is one of the areas in which the proposal is most clear. Uh, judges and members of the first instance tribunal would be prohibited from acting as counsel or as expert. Um, yet, at least in the investment court system context, they would be part-time until there is sufficient work to keep them fully occupied. 
Um, there doesn't appear to be any prohibition on their acting as an arbitrator in other cases, so long as that does not give an appearance of impropriety. Um, yet it is, seems that these appointments could give rise to conflict of interest concerns, and that's something that needs to be addressed more fully before the court goes into operation. Concerns about qualifications should be ameliorated. Judges and members of the first instance tribunal are supposed to have knowledge of public international law and ideally experience in international investment and trade law. Now again, the busiest arbitrators already satisfy those criteria. Um, and finally, judges and members are supposed to possess the qualities necessary for appointment to the highest judicial offices or be jurists of recognized standing in their own jurisdictions. Um, it is not really clear that this is any different from what occurs now, um, both with respect to other international tribunals, um, but I'm also hard pressed to think of any existing arbitrator who doesn't meet that standard. Um, again, in practice, it's going to depend on how this provision is interpreted, whether you necessarily have a difference in the identity of the decision makers on a court or in a court construct. So overall, the provisions on arbitrators unquestionably respond to certain criticisms. The prohibition on counsel and expert work explicitly precludes a practice that many believe give rise at the very least um, uh, gives rise uh, at the very least to an appearance of impropriety. Whether this proposal will expand the pool of arbitrators beyond those already firmly established is questionable. A great deal depends on what states do and whom they appoint. Many of the most well-known arbitrators more than satisfy all of the characteristics described above. Um, if they are, re they, in other words, they could be appointed to these courts. We don't know who will be appointed to uh, uh, an investment court or to a multilateral investment court. Um, it also seems at least possible that the pool will be somewhat limited, especially in the investment court system context where the uh, appointment is part-time. Um, because many people will have to keep their day jobs, so you'll have a limited number of people able to accept the limitations that come with the part-time appointment, and it seems hard not to hypothesize that those are likely to be more senior people, um, which likely um, exacerbates um, what is something of a, a, an experience bias, which um, by which states, ten, states and investors have tended to choose arbitrators with significant experience, which means it's hard for new entrants to break in. Um, it seems with a court, with the establishment of a court, you're going to have a more limited number of slots available, and we don't yet know who will be put in those slots, but certainly the uh, senior people might well apply and want to be in them, and in that respect, it, broadening the pool, deepening the pool, and making it uh, younger and more varied might be a little bit difficult. Um, a, a, another um, complication is the question of representativeness that I addressed above. If you're going to have an investment, uh, a multilateral investment court, are you concerned with representativeness? If you have 130 different countries uh, taking part in an in 
a multilateral investment court, it seems unlikely that they can each have a judge on the court. Um, uh, will there be a judge ad hoc system similar to what is found in the investment um, in the International Court of Justice? Uh, that is something yet to be determined. Um, and uh, finally, and this relates to a point I've made before, uh, in the bilateral investment court system context, it isn't clear that the choice of the words judge and member to describe the decision makers is really going to make them judges or members of a court. And here is where the impermanent nature of the tribunal might be the, an obstacle to the creation of a cohesive court or group of people who develop a, an allegiance to a particular treaty or body or each other. Um, if the court, uh, if individual panels are going to sit in groups of three, um, you might have a situation where certain judges never see each other or meet each other for some months or years at a time. Their work is going to be on demand. Uh, again, they, they may not necessarily have times at which all of the judges sit together. And at least at present, again, in the bilateral context, there appears to be no uh, vision of having a permanent installation, a permanent set of offices where people would house themselves. So uh, I'm a little bit uh, skeptical that you will create the culture of a court when you're not creating the, the physical edifice of a court. In the multilateral investment court context, I think those concerns would diminish because there would likely be a permanent installation. The fourth set of uh, concerns that have arisen around uh, investment arbitration is the question of transparency, or more accurately, a lack of transparency. Uh, or, uh, and this is where things have developed quite a lot in the past 20 years. Um, starting in the early part of the 21st century, the United States and Canada began including transparency provisions in all of their treaties, and Mexico agreed to do that in the NAFTA context as well. So NAFTA arbitrations are extremely transparent. Um, the rest of the world, uh, uh, to speak a little bit broadly, but not terribly inaccurately, have not followed suit with as much alacrity. Um, we do have the ancestral uh, uh, rules on transparency and treaty-based investor state dispute settlement, which provide for an excellent uh, set of, of transparency regulations, including ensuring that there are public versions of pleadings and memorials, open hearings, and the possibility for uh, amicus curiae participation, among others. Um, but the Mauritius Convention has, it has entered into force, but it has only five adherents. Uh, so states have been a little bit slow to adopt it. Um, so notwithstanding public protestations about desiring transparency in the abstract, it is not clear that states necessarily want to bind themselves to transparency in practice. Um, still, the establishment of a an investment court system and or a MIC is an opportunity to have transparency and I believe that states will embrace it when and if the time comes. Um, the fifth broad set of, of criticisms uh, revolves around procedural issues. 
Time is going to prohibit me from making a comprehensive survey of the myriad procedural matters that have given rise to criticisms of investor state dispute settlement. Um, but it should be noted that even though the reform initiatives are procedural in nature, they cannot reach all of the potential procedural criticisms, many of which are embedded in individual treaties. Um, but let me review a few. Um, one of the first concerns that gave rise to concerns about the legitimacy of investor state dispute settlement was the question of parallel proceedings um, in which investors had multiple bites at the cherry uh, and that gave rise to concerns about double remedies. The emblematic example is the uh, uh, CME and, and louder cases. Uh, CME brought a case against the Czech Republic under the Netherlands Czech Republic Investment Treaty. Uh, Ronald Lauder, the owner of CME, the ultimate beneficial owner of CME, brought the identical case under the United States Czech Republic Investment Treaty. And there was also a commercial arbitration at the same time based on an underlying contract that formed part of the under the constellation of facts in the treaty cases. Uh, could a multilateral investment court resolve this dilemma? Well, it would depend on who, which states are party to the multilateral investment court. If the Netherlands and the Czech Republic were, but the United States were not, you would still have two cases and two potential uh, bites at the cherry. Even if all three of those countries were party to the multilateral investment court, you would still have the contract case that would probably be, probably be separate and parallel. And it's not clear that an investment court system can resolve those questions. Second set of cases of criticisms involves uh, denial of benefits or treaty shopping, concern that uh, investors can structure themselves through various jurisdictions in order to take advantage of an investment treaty. Um, again, it seems that you would have to change the rules in individual treaties rather than changing the rules in the procedural context. Um, you might be able to ensure that a multilateral investment court cannot be uh, taken advantage of uh, but that would probably require changing the substantive provisions of a treaty as well, and that might be a little bit more difficult, especially given variations in uh, treaties. Um, uh, a, another area of procedural concern is, um, and here I should mention that I'm using the distinction between procedure and substance with a little bit of caution, um, but this is the question of asymmetry. Treaties give, um, give rights to investors, but impose no obligations on them. Um, therefore, the most part, therefore, investors have not been able to make counterclaims. There is a suggestion that a multilateral investment court will have a procedural rule that explicitly permits uh, states to make counterclaims against investors. But there's huge uncertainty regarding applicable law, regarding the substance of that claim um, and how that intersects with the terms of a treaty. NAFTA chapter 11, for example, permits claims for breaches of section A of that chapter, which imposes obligations on states. 
It doesn't say that anybody can bring a counterclaim. Could the investment court language nonetheless be uh, uh, impose a counterclaim under the NAFTA? Well, if it did, what would be the basis for it? It can't be Section A of Chapter 11. Would it be the domestic law of the host state, international human rights law, other international treaties? And how would that decision intersect with the relevant applicable law clause? These are questions to which we don't have answers, and it shows that it's difficult to separate procedure and substance. Uh, so the goal of UNSATRAL's Working Group 3 is to work on procedural fixes, um, but it's not altogether clear that procedural fixes alone can be adequate. Um, a fi the final area of, of procedural concerns I want to mention is that of duration and cost. There's an argument that a multilateral investment court will reduce duration and costs. The argument uh, is based on the notion that greater predictability will lead to more efficient proceedings and fewer creative and frivolous arguments from counsel. Um, uh, however, there really is no suggestion that states will not continue to bring jurisdictional objections. Um, just because a state would sign on to a multilateral investment court would not mean that it has agreed that a given dispute falls under that treaty. So it seems likely that jurisdictional challenges would remain. Research from the uh, Pluricourt's Center of Excellence at the University of Oslo suggests that jurisdictional challenges add on average a year to the procedure. Um, in a, in a system with an appellate body, both sizes are likely to have the incentive to appeal a decision uh, no matter which way that it goes. Um, and depending on the enforcement regime that people that the states agree on, you might have yet another layer of enforcement proceedings in national courts. So you might have a first instance decision, an appellate body decision, and an enforcement regime in national courts. Uh, so that seems likely to add time uh, and cost rather than to reduce it. Now, it is possible that things would be a little speedier in a court context, particularly in with respect to a MIC, judges would have only one job. Um, having a pre-selected pool of decision makers and time limitations uh, should help with respect to tribunals' uh, ability to render decisions in a timely manner. Um, costs uh, are, uh, Costs alone are a slightly, uh, uh, I guess, a, a related uh, but separate question. Most of the costs in an arbitration are counsel, not arbitrators. So you would reduce costs a bit in that arbitrators would have a fixed remuneration, but counsel fees would not likely be reduced. In fact, if you had three sets of proceedings, they might even be increased. Um, now, there is some talk about uh, having establishing an advisory center for investment law modeled on, the, modeled on the WTO advisory center, as well as on some assistance for poor countries or even for small and medium-sized enterprises. But it is far from clear how any of those initiatives will be funded. Um, so the cost concerns, I believe, are likely to remain. For now, uh, in the interest of time, I'll stop addressing procedural concerns and make a few concluding comments. 
so to sum up, can a reform that is focused on procedure but not on substance be sufficient to address the concerns raised about the legitimacy of investor state dispute settlement? Uh, or to put this a different way, is true reform contingent on resurrecting a multilateral agreement on investment such that all substantive and procedural issues would be covered by the same treaty, thus giving rise to a greater chance for consistency and predictability? It might be too much to ask an appellate body to achieve consistency and correctness with so many different treaties uh, uh, feeding into it, which would be especially true in an open architecture system where some disputes would come from a first instance court and others would come from ad hoc arbitral tribunals. Uh, we might hope that an appellate body could achieve what I call harmonization, that at least you would have consistent decisions about treaties that have the same obligations. Um, uh, another note of caution here, though, is that this will not happen overnight, uh, that establishing a consistent line of jurisprudence takes even domestic courts establishing, um, interpreting consistent uh, or plausibly consistent uh, domestic laws can take years to establish a consistent line of jurisprudence. So it's quite important, I believe, for its legitimacy that the um, MIC not be oversold. It can solve some issues, it can't solve all issues, and it's unlikely to solve them all quickly. Um, and just to emphasize, uh, since we don't even have a multilateral investment court yet, the UNCITRAL's Working Group 3 has been addressing the question of reform of investor state dispute settlement for two, a little bit more than two years. There have been five full weeks of discussions, and the states have agreed that there needs to be reform, and they have some agreement on the way forward, but no agreement as to what exact reform is desirable, and that is in two years. Um, there is an ambitious work program going forward, but it, again, this is not going to be a speedy endeavor. Um, I might compare this to the Mauritius Transparency Convention. The Mauritius Transparency Convention, after approximately four years of negotiations, was open for signature in 2014. Five years, almost five years later, December will mark five years, um, it now has five ratifications. So assuming we get through the UNCITRAL process, we establish a multilateral investment court, and we get ratifications, it will not start its work for some years, I, I believe. Um, certainly it's true that some of the most visible ethical concerns about arbitrators should be eliminated. Um, yet if the concerns that arbitrators are largely male, largely from developed countries, and largely very senior, were to transfer from the arbitral context to the court context, uh, maybe for a court we don't mind that those are the characteristics of the decision makers, um, but careful attention will have to be given to addressing those concerns, uh, particularly if you have many different countries charged with appointing uh, a couple of different people to the court. Ensuring gender balance, age balance, regional representation would require some coordination. Uh, uh, will the improvements in transparency and the appointment of permanent judges by states be sufficient to assuage concerns about sovereignty? 
Or is the hostility towards investment arbitration so deep that no reform is adequate to address the problems? There's, there are continued criticisms mounted against uh, the UNCTRAL process. And certainly, even with a multilateral investment court, you would still have investor state dispute settlement independent of national courts, although less independent of states. I'd like to think that this is not so, that, uh, that uh, improvements will be beneficial enough to assuage some of the concerns. Uh, functional international courts are essential to the rule of law, as is state accountability. So we can hope for the best with a multilateral investment court in order to contribute to the rule of law, uh, peaceful international dispute settlement, uh, and state, uh, state accountability, state responsibility for state action. Thank you.